World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When Jair Bolsonaro was sworn in as Brazil's president in January, he spoke of a national effort to fix the country's economy and to rid it of crime and corruption. Now, two sweeping bits of legislation will reveal whether Mr. Bolsonaro's government can deliver on those promises. And there's a big-budget science fiction film out called The Wandering Earth. You know the kind of thing. The planet is saved through gritty collaboration and daring do. But the themes seem suspiciously aligned with the philosophy of China's leader. First up, though... One of the largest rivers in the world is drying up. We need a healthy river on our station because it literally is a pinnacle of a way of life where we are. Without it, we just won't survive. The Murray-Darling Basin in southeastern Australia is a body of water larger than Ethiopia. But mismanagement and overproduction of crops such as cotton are causing it to dry up. Hundreds of thousands of fish have died this year, and whole sections of the river are without water altogether. Kate McBride is a fifth-generation sheep and cattle farmer from Tolarno Station, which sits at the banks of the Darling River. She's been campaigning for better water management to try and save her animals and the river. I'm standing on the base of the Darling River. I'm about 100 metres below the Burke Weir. Now, there is no water coming down at all. What we're seeing is about a 1,400-kilometre stretch of river that is absolutely bone dry. Towns like Tilpa and Louth are being devastated. Today, I've actually been flying around cotton country in a plane, and we've seen huge amounts of irrigation. People along the river need to be put before opportunistic crops like cotton. Other farmers in the area have also been hit hard by the lack of water. We're very proud of being fifth-generation farmers in Australia, but we can farm no longer. And it's not only us, it's also sustainable irrigators on the Murray system that are collapsing now. Dairies, people who have supplied the food supply of Australia and out of the food bowl for generations, they're collapsing because there's no water, because big, hungry crops up in the northern basin are taking all the water. Severe water shortages have also hit other countries around the world. Last year, Cape Town in South Africa became the first major city to almost run out of water. Although 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water, less than 1% is fresh, and most of that is under the ground. Shortages are becoming worse as the world's population grows. By 2050, there could be more than 10 billion people on the planet. The dystopian vision is of a Mad Max future where we're all fighting each other for the last few drops of water. And there are always concerns. It's become a sort of cliche of geopolitical prognostication, hasn't it, to say that the future wars will be over water. Simon Long edits the international section of The Economist and has written a special report about the world's water. 
You've looked into this at some length. What What's the problem with water? The problem with water is there's not enough of it in the places where it's needed, and in some cases too much of it where it's not needed. In other words, there's an imbalance, an inequity in the way water is distributed about the world. It's not that there's too little water, but it's in the wrong, not all in the right places. So some people are suffering severe water stress. An awful lot of people, some uh, over a billion of them around the world, don't have enough water. And that problem is getting more acute for three main reasons. The first is that the world's population is continuing to grow and will for some decades, whatever forecast one takes of the world's population. Secondly, good news, the world is getting richer. That means people have more money, can spend it more, and the way they tend to spend it is in more water-intensive lifestyles. In particular, for example, meat consumption around the world is going up very fast. And meat, producing meat, requires far more water than producing vegetables and, and normal crops. And thirdly, and the big unknown in all of this, is climate change and global warming. One analogy I heard a couple of times is that it's like a giant magnifying glass. So the problem I described at the outset will get worse. Wet places will get even wetter, dry places will get drier. So the more worrying effect of climate change in the long run is that those places suffering severe water stress are going to suffer it even more severely. You mentioned that the problem is sort of very unevenly distributed. Where are the the, the places that are seeing the pinch the worst? You would expect it to be a lot of poor countries, and that is the case, that some countries like parts of India, parts of South Asia, Pakistan, for example, are under severe stress. So are parts of uh, very rich countries like, as we've heard, Australia, parts of the Murray-Darley Basin are, are suffering severe water stress. Parts of United States, California, for example, it is spread all over the world in different pockets. Uh, there are places which are simply are not getting enough water. So it's a combination then between local uh, geological conditions, hydrogeological conditions, and habits, customs, meat preferences, and so on? That's right. And a lot of it comes down to how different places manage their demand and use of water. Uh, One of the places I look at quite closely in, in this report is Israel, which prides itself on having a very consciously managed water system. Uh, it uses an awful lot of desalinated water, which is a very expensive way of producing water. Uh, It is acutely conscious as a nation of the level of water in the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a freshwater lake, which was for a long time its largest source of freshwater. So people there are very conscious the whole time of how water dependent they are, of how much they're using. A lot of other countries just don't have that. I mean, in, in, in our own country, in, in, in Britain, for example, people generally, uh, until recently, what their, their water usage wasn't even metered. They had no real consciousness of how much they were using, particularly since the way people use most water is not the obvious ways drinking, washing, going to the toilet. It's in what they eat. And so what about other technological approaches to the problem where there's a lot of usage? Again, Israel is an interesting example because it reuses almost all of its wastewater, which it sends to agriculture. Now, that is a cheaper, more cost-effective way of producing usable water than than desalination. And of course, it's something that every country has. Uh, Singapore actually goes even further. Their people... They, they bottle and drink their wastewater, so it can, it can be used. A lot of countries, I think, will have to come to see their wastewater not simply as a product that has to be got rid of as unpolluting a way as possible, but actually as a resource that can be used. So what's driving this is essentially a great deal of human activity and then that made worse by, by climate change. 
Exactly. It's it's humans that use the water. Mostly they use it around the world. If one looks at where water actually goes, mostly they use it for agriculture. Some 70% of water use goes to agriculture. In particular, that is for irrigation in dry countries. That irrigation can be in quite inefficient ways. In a lot of countries, it's flood irrigation. Water is just flooded over uh, crops and a lot of that is wasted through evaporation or through getting or through overwatering crops. So human activity is the, the main driver, will continue to be the main driver, and it's human activity that has to change. What I'm hearing here is kind of a variant on reduce, reuse, recycle. Is it is, is it your view that just a combination of those kinds of things is is the best way to tackle this problem wherever it occurs? Absolutely, I think I think that's right. The problem everywhere always is mismanagement, and the the answer is to use water more wisely, and it involves pricing water properly. Because in a lot of places, water is either unpriced altogether; it's just given away free, or charged at a cost that goes nowhere close to recovering the cost of its production. So if those aspects can be addressed, the, the water problem is actually, it's a terrible word to use in the context of water, but it is soluble. Simon, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Trabalharei incansavelmente. Brazil's new president, Jair Bolsonaro, took office at the beginning of this year. Already, his government is being put to the test. Jair Bolsonaro was elected because of three huge problems in Brazil. One of them is a lagging economy, another endemic corruption, and finally, violent crime rates that have been increasing in recent years. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent. And Brazilians thought that Bolsonaro, who was sort of a backbench congressman, that he would be the one to fix these huge problems. Two of Mr. Bolsonaro's most important ministers have each presented ambitious reform proposals. Now, both face long battles in Congress. With his bill, Sergio Moro, the justice minister, is taking aim at corruption and crime. Brazil has one of the highest murder rates in the world, and it's rising. In 2017, nearly 64,000 people were killed. Finance Minister Paulo Guedes presented a plan to overhaul Brazil's sprawling pension system, a reform vital to its economic outlook. Both of them are these ministers who, having been brought in from the outside to the Bolsonaro government, lend authority and credibility to a rather chaotic and controversial president. Bolsonaro openly admires Brazil's military dictatorship, which ended in 1985. His victory has alarmed many after sexist, racist and homophobic comments and over concerns. Bolsonaro, of course, in the international press, was really known for being this polarizing, controversial figure. 
However, you know, now he's president. He has tamed his discourse. And these two bills are Bolsonaro's government's first chance to deliver on these promises to fix these problems that are ailing Brazil. The two bills might also have significance beyond their immediate objectives. The fate of these bills in many ways is a bellwether for the fate of Bolsonaro's government. Not just because the bills contain all sorts of important proposals that will set Brazil back on course in terms of the economy and addressing crime and corruption, but also because a lot of people are watching very carefully to see how the government deals with Congress in negotiating these bills. And so if they're successful, that shows that this is a government that is functional. The man responsible for the crime bill, Sergio Moro, is a well-known anti-corruption crusader. He was the federal judge in charge of investigating Latin America's biggest ever corruption scandal, known as Lava Jato. It was through that investigation that he convicted Brazil's former president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, on corruption charges. That conviction precluded Lula, as he's known, from running for president again. Now, Mr. Moro is in the government of Lula's rival, attracting doubts about his impartiality. Sarah interviewed Mr. Moro the very same day he presented his sweeping crime and corruption bill in Congress. So along with Mike Reed, the Economist Bayo columnist, we walked into the Justice Ministry, which is this massive, beautiful, modern building um, with sort of cascading waterfalls in front of it and high ceilings and marble floors. And we waited for Moro. He sort of rushed back from the halls of Congress to speak with us. The very fact that he spoke to us during such a busy day shows that he really takes the media quite seriously. And this was always true when he was a judge. Um, he views the press as an important tool to getting public opinion behind him and putting pressure on politicians. So, Sarah, when he raced back from delivering this bill, what was he like? He was determined to defend his proposal. Well, what's in this proposal? So this is a massive bill. It is addressing everything from drug trafficking organizations to political campaign finance violations. The most troublesome bit from a human rights perspective was this campaign promise of Bolsonaro's to make sure that police officers who kill suspects don't get in trouble for that. Moro, in the interview with us, said, really, law in Brazil already protected this, that all that they were doing was actually just clarifying in the language what this meant. And what he's done is he's added a little sentence that says, due to, quote, fear, surprise, or violent emotion, a police officer can plead self-defense. What the human rights advocates say is, you know, that's sort of just just a catch-all, and the message that police officers are getting is anything goes. Um, and it was interesting that just, you know, a few days after this bill was presented in Congress, the police in Rio de Janeiro killed 13 people in a favela, and it, it looks like some of them had surrendered beforehand but were shot nonetheless. And what about corruption? How does the bill address that? This bill has made sentences tougher for a lot of acts of corruption. And the most controversial bit is that it makes 
illegal campaign finance violations a criminal offense. Before, that would be a civil offense and he sort of could get away with a slap on the wrist. However, you're already seeing Mordo coming up against Brazil's Congress because parliament members basically objected to that bit. And Mordo said, okay, okay, you know, we'll separate this bill into three different parts and we'll save that for last, which some people worry means that it won't really get addressed at all. And how about Paulo Guedes's pensions bill? What's he proposing? So pensions reform is probably the most pressing issue in Brazil right now, simply because the system is so generous and so unsustainable now that the population is getting older, that within just a few years, it's going to be, you know, taking up pretty much all of the federal money with nothing left over for things like schools or health care. And you know, that contributed to the privileges of certain sectors like public servants who often retire in their early 50s on full salary. Um, Guedes just presented this extremely ambitious proposal. It does try to address all of the different problems in the pension system. There are some concerns about who the winners are and who the losers are, but it does succeed in its promise to um, really cut back on, on the privileges across society. However, this bill, unlike Moro's crime proposal, is not going to be popular with the masses. So the real question is what happens once the congressmen get their hands on it. And what do you expect Congress will do? This is a Congress that really depends on public opinion. You've got congressmen literally Facebook living the congressional sessions and their reactions to them. And that means that they are really going to be listening to their constituents. And on pensions, you know, the key thing here is for the government to explain that this is a bill that's for everyone and it's a bill that combats the kinds of privileges, you know, including of the politicians themselves, that, you know, that got Brazil into such a rough spot economically. Bolsonaro has always said that he doesn't want to do politics through the traditional sort of pork and patronage that greases the wheels of government. Instead, he's going to try to form alliances sort of based on the strength of the proposals alone, which really means that the most important thing here is the message that he sends about these proposals. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Jason. The Wandering Earth is about um, a period in the not-too-distant future when the sun is expanding um, and engulfing the entire solar system. James Miles is The Economist's China editor, and he's recently seen an interesting film. So in anticipation of this, um, people on Earth build thrusters to move the Earth away from the sun's orbit. All countries and regions around the world will mobilize all resources to construct 10,000... And navigate the Earth uh, through the solar system past the planets. It's as uh, the Earth is going past Jupiter that things get out of hand. Warning. Earth engine system failing. Total 120... Uh, uh, Jupiter begins to drag uh, the Earth into its orbit... Um, And it's when the Earth is 
um, close to being engulfed by Jupiter, uh, that the film reaches its climax. James, even for science fiction, this seems a little outlandish. And, and I like how the you know, expanding sun engulfing the solar system is not the beginning of the drama. Audiences are liking it? Uh, they are loving it. Um, this is the first Chinese sci-fi blockbuster. And it has become the second highest grossing film in Chinese cinema history. So far, it has grossed some 650 million US dollars, almost all of that in China itself. And it seems Chinese audiences are loving it. Why do you suppose there is this appetite then for, for science fiction in particular? Chinese audiences have always liked Hollywood movies. They've seen others of this genre before. But what's unique about this one is it's one made in China by a Chinese director based on a Chinese story. It is, however, um, rather different from the original story. And one a big feature that is missing is a story about how a huge rebellion engulfs the earth. Of course, the Communist Party is fearful of nothing if not uprisings. And so um, clearly this was considered too sensitive for the movie. Aside from excising the bit about a troublesome rebellion, has the, has the state had anything else to do with this film then? Well, yes, indeed. The film company is a state-owned one. And the theme of it, you could say, is very close to a propaganda theme that has been touted by China's President Xi Jinping. This idea of a community with a shared future for mankind, a rather sort of cumbersome phrase that he likes to trot out. I don't quite understand what a community with a shared future for mankind is. Those last two words seem redundant. But I think in Xi Jinping's view, it means a world in which we don't worry about ideology. Everybody just gets on with getting rich um, and never mind the fact that China is communist. And what's interesting about this movie is that it's not one that puts the Communist Party front and center. In fact, uh, you don't hear about the Communist Party at all. And instead, what comes across is the idea of a future world in which China, yes, is very central, but it's sharing its efforts to save the earth with other countries, peoples from other countries. And that is the rather sort of warm and fuzzy notion which Xi Jinping likes to generate with his idea of a, of a community with a shared future for, for mankind. So it does uh, very much serve the, the party's propaganda interests. What you're describing sounds like a perfectly reasonable, kinder, gentler kind of vision then. Should we have some concerns that this is, you know, the, the Communist Party's line, a, a state-sponsored film comes out with something that, that fundamentally sounds like a pretty cooperative message? Well, um, I think it serves a very useful purpose for the Communist Party at home uh, because what is clear in the movie is that even though countries are pulling together to save the earth, China is central to this effort. Chinese people dominate the movie. Uh, so it is useful for the party from that point of view in terms of its efforts to uh, boost nationalism. And I think in a, in a subtle way and in a surprisingly clever way, it is useful for the party globally. I think uh, people outside China looking at this film will not see in it overt propaganda. And instead, that sort of warm, fuzzy feeling that Xi Jinping is trying to project will come across very clearly. Sounds out of this world, James. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We choose hope. Fire. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.